That song was <clears throat> Amazing Grace. That song was just broadcast on national television recently when Garth Brooks sang it at the inauguration of President Biden. And as I was watching it live, I couldn't help but wonder if any people there knew what it meant. <laughs> no one bothered to explain it. He sang the song, he asked the people at home to sing along with him, and no one explained anything. Well, today we're going to explain it. <laughs> Grab your Bible and turn with me to the book of 1 Corinthians. We will start at the end of chapter 5 and then go back to the book of Exodus and then finally get to our text for the day. I've titled this message, A Gospel Sermon. A Gospel Sermon. In a way, every sermon should be a gospel sermon to varying degrees, but this is through and through a sermon focused on explaining the gospel. Why don't I pray before we get into the text today? Again, we'll be in 1 Corinthians, about the middle of the book. Father, we thank you so much for your amazing grace. It truly is a sweet sound. Your grace has saved wretches like us. We once were lost, but now we have been found in Jesus who pursued us and found us. And it is grace that is our anthem. It is grace that will lead us home. We are so thankful for the grace that we have from you in the gospel. God, I ask that today as we look into your word and we study this good news that we would understand, that we truly would have understanding, that we would have a deeper appreciation for who you are and for who we are, that we would understand more of our purpose in Christ. Today we ask that you would make your word clear to all of us. Though I am a fallen creature, Lord, I ask that you would use me to preach your word clearly, that the gospel would take root in the hearts of all of your people. It's in Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen. Well, as Tyler explained for us last week in the first few verses of 1 Corinthians 6, as a church, the church of Jesus Christ, the church that he has purchased with his own blood, we should not be appealing to the unregenerate in the world to settle disputes among us. That's the big idea of the first part of chapter 6. We shouldn't appeal to unregenerate people to settle disputes among those who have been born again. The church is to judge matters in-house with strict discipline to honor God. We are to take care of our own matters with a view toward honoring God with strict discipline. And I want you to look at the end of chapter 5 with me. This is a passage I preached on a couple of weeks ago. Starting at verse 9, Paul says to this church, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world, or with the covetous and swindlers, or with idolaters. For then you would have to go out of the world. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person or a covetous or, covetous or an idolater or a reviler 
or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one, so-called brothers. Verse 12, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? But those who are outside, God judges. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. And this is the big idea in chapter 6, is that we judge within the church. We don't go looking to judge the world. God judges the world. But in the church, we have been called as stewards of the gospel, stewards of his word, stewards of his grace. We are called to judge in here, to make decisions about one another in here, in love and in holiness, with a view to honor God. The church is to take care of her own business. The church is not to bring in the world's discernment to settle matters here. What does the world have to offer the church? Not discernment, not truth, not a view of honoring God. Therefore, we settle our disputes here, and we don't appeal to the world. So the big idea and the key application is that the church and the world mingle, because here we are on this globe walking around, we mingle, but we don't blend. The church and the world mingle, but we do not blend. Some might ask, well, what's the big deal? Why? Why, why can't we blend with the world? I mean, you know there's a whole movement up there of seeker-sensitive churches, right? They seek to attract the world into their congregation, to bring the world into their auditoriums that are speckled across the United States and even around the world, to bring them in so that we can all merge together and we can appeal to them and that they could join our ranks. You won't find the word repentance spoken very much in those churches. You won't find the call for sinners to lay down their sin, to turn from their sin, and to turn to Jesus in those churches. They want the world to come in and alongside so they can grow and be bigger and have a greater influence in the name of Jesus, but not by the Word of God. And what they're doing is detrimental to the reputation of Christ. It's a big deal to seek to blend with the world. And we start here in our thinking that God is absolutely holy, through and through, fully, totally, exhaustively holy, pure, righteous. That has to be our focus as we think through these things. Now today, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9 is going to be the key verse we look at. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? We'll get to that eventually, but there must be some big picture context to this about the nature of God, the character of God. And we have to understand that there is a primary distinction, a fundamental distinction, an elementary distinction between the unrighteous and the righteous. And I don't mean lowercase r righteous, I mean capital R righteous. There is a fundamental distinction between God and all of those who have fallen short of His glory. This is the primary difference that we have to grasp. And I want us to consider a landmark moment in Israel's history. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 19. Exodus 19, to see 
this time when Israel was totally affected by the presence of God in an astounding way. Exodus 19, we'll start at verse 17. Verse 17 says that Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. Marinate on that for a moment. He brought them out of the camp to meet God. Can you imagine being in the camp? Moses coming out and saying, Hey, everybody, we're going to go meet God. I imagine not a few people said, I'm not ready. But that's what they were doing. To meet God, they were standing at the foot of the mountain. Read with me starting at verse 18. It says, Now Mount Sinai was all in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire. And its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked violently. When the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him with thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, Go down, warn the people, so that they do not break through to the Lord to gaze." And many of them perish. And also, let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, or else the Lord will break out against them. Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you warned us, saying, Set bounds about the mountain and consecrate it. Then the Lord said to him, Go down and come up again, you and Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, or he will break forth upon them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. We learn in this passage from what the Lord said to Moses, that if the people were to gaze upon the Lord, they would die. Looking upon the Lord resulted in death. The priests failing to consecrate themselves in uh, verse 22. If they did not consecrate themselves, the Lord would break out against them. They would die. Failing to set yourself apart as a priest, as holy, would result in death. Gazing upon the Lord resulted in death. Not consecrating yourself resulted in death. And here in this moment with the smoke and the fire, the presence of the Lord on the mountain... He gives them the Ten Commandments, the table of contents for holiness. If you look at the Ten Commandments and break them down one by one, pretty much every other law that's found in the Torah will fit under one of those as a heading. He gives them a holiness code to live by. Notice that Yahweh didn't affirm them in their state. God didn't come down on the mountain to tell these people, you're beautiful just the way you are. Notice also that God didn't say, I'm lovesick here without you. I need you. It's so lonely up here without you. If you listen to popular Christian radio, that might be what you thought he said. But he said, don't look at me or you'll die. There's a fundamental distinction between the holy and the unrighteous. This was a fearful encounter with the Almighty. Look at chapter 20 with me, starting at verse 18. 
after he gives them the Ten Commandments, it says, All the people perceived the thunder and the lightning flashes and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood at a distance. Then they said to Moses, Speak to us yourself and we will listen, but let not God speak to us or we will die. Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid, for God has come in order to test you. Well, that's a good reason to be afraid, Moses. And in order that the fear of him may remain with you so that you may not sin. So the people stood at a distance while Moses approached the thick cloud where God was. Then the Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, You yourselves have seen that I have spoken to you from heaven. You shall not make other gods besides me, gods of silver or gods of gold. You shall not make for yourselves, or gods of silver, gods of gold, you shall not make for yourselves. Verse 24, you shall make an altar of earth for me, and you shall sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings your sheep and your oxen, in every place where I cause my name to be remembered. I will come to you and bless you. Verse 25, If you make an altar of stone for me, you shall not build it of cut stones, for if you wield your tool on it, you will profane it. And you shall not go up by steps to my altar, so that your nakedness will not be exposed on it. The people understood their position before God. Look back at verse 18 with me. What are they doing? They're trembling. They're social distancing from God. They stood back at a distance because they thought, if we were any closer, we'll surely die. Trembling because they knew that the holy had full right to punish them in their sins, to crush them, to kill them because of their condition. Verse 19, they didn't want God speaking to them. Even the voice of God, they thought, would kill them because of that fundamental distinction between the capital R, righteous, and themselves, the unrighteous. They understood this distinction in beings, that God was holy and they were not. God was holy through and through, without spot or blemish, and they were not. There was nothing good in them. Through and through, they were fallen. Through and through, God was and is and will always be holy. And this reality has continued for all people. The reality of unholy people standing before a holy God in danger of death, in danger of judgment, in danger of condemnation, that has continued for all people in all cultures for all times. Understanding the holiness of God should make us, like the Israelites, tremble. When we understand our condition, that we are thoroughly unholy, that should cause us to fear. This isn't a popular message. This doesn't fit with the seeker-sensitive movement. But this is truth. God is holy, and we are not. And the wonder of the gospel 
is that although we are unholy through and through, we have been reconciled to the Holy One. We've been fully, truly, exhaustively reconciled to the capital R, righteous, through Christ. It's the wonder, it's the, it's the amazing grace of the gospel that here we are standing before the Almighty, trembling, keeping at a distance, saying, don't speak or we'll die. And He reaches out with His grace and He causes us to be holy. In a moment, in an instant, with a word spoken, we are declared holy in the sight of God. And there's no longer any reason for trembling. There's no longer any reason for that fear of condemnation. But we're given a promise that for now and for always, we are reconciled to God as His holy ones, as His saints, as His church. Therefore, the church's position is one of holiness. Where are we on the map as God looks at us? He sees us fully, truly righteous, without spot or blemish. Because in the gospel, the righteousness of Christ, which is thoroughly, truly, purely holy, He is God, all of that gets put on us, and we are covered in His righteousness. All God sees when He sees the church is righteousness in terms of our eternal state. We've already covered in 1 Corinthians, there will be a judgment for the church, but that is not a judgment for condemnation for your soul. That's been taken care of once for all in Christ, and no one can change it, no one can reverse it. We have the position of holiness. Therefore, our goal as a church is holiness. Our position and our goal are both holiness. And the world has neither that position nor that goal. The world is not reckoned as holy. The the world is defined as unrighteous, where we were. The world is still at the foot of the mountain trembling, as they should. And we've been brought together in Christ through the gospel, no longer to fear or tremble about our souls, but to have eternal rest and to have that eternal position of holy. But the fundamental divide between the church and the world is the same as it is between God and and the unrighteous creatures. Since we are the righteousness of God in Christ, we have that same sort of distinction from the world as they are defined as unholy, we're defined as holy. We've been given the title righteousness. It says earlier in the book of 1 Corinthians that Jesus Christ has become to us the righteousness of God. And the world has not the righteousness of God. We have to understand this distinction between the church and the world. If you don't get it, our text today says you've been deceived. You can look at 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9 with me. 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And he goes on to say, before listing these sins, do not be deceived. That means that if you think God is okay with the world, that God affirms them in their state, that God is just heartbroken because He needs them, you're deceived. 
You don't understand the Word of God. You don't understand the holiness of God. You don't understand the gospel of God. And if you're a part of the church, you've been made holy in Christ. You are considered righteous. One more text for us to look at before we go back to 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 6. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. See these words, starting at verse 14, having to do with our relationship with the world. Remember, we mingle with the world, we don't blend. (laughs) There's no true mixing. But here we are in this place among the unrighteous, but we do not become bound together with them. 2 Corinthians 6.14 Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what is a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. Just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord. And do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you. And you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. There's no binding partnership that we have with the world. There's no fellowship that we have with the world. There's no harmony, no commonality, no agreement. You see all these words that are being used in the passage? None of those things exist between the righteous and the unrighteous. And this applies to all areas where two or more become one. It applies to marriages where two become one. Don't be yoked together with the unrighteous. There is no fellowship, partnership there. And it applies to churches where all these different members come together as one local body. Don't be joined together. What partnership is there? We are the righteous and they the unrighteous. Any place we make binding decisions as stewards of God, this applies. We have no partnership with the unrighteous. And this At the end of the day, when it's all said and done, this truly is the only demographic that matters. We just had a census last year. I don't know when all that data comes out of the 2020 census, but you'll see all sorts of information about gender, which I don't know how many categories there will be for that this go-around, but race and ethnicity and, and income and education and family size. You'll see all these statistics, but you won't see the only demographic that matters. In Christ or not in Christ. And at the end, that is all that matters. Therefore, we, in this life, live like that. Your race, your ethnicity, what do I care? Your age, doesn't matter. All sorts of decisions that you've made in life, that's between you and the Lord. But are you in Christ? Do you know Jesus as your Savior? Have you been born again? That's what matters. At the end of the day, it's the only thing that matters. 
We need to live like it. This is the basic reality. I want you to look at chapter 7, verse 1, still in 2 Corinthians, chapter 7, verse 1. How should we live then in light of this reality? Paul says, Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. That's what we do. That's our goal. That's our aim. It's to strip away all those things from our life that defined us before Christ and hold on to Christ as our only identity and to grow in Christ as our only Savior, to make holiness our aim. Pleasing God must be our aim. You are holy. God has said so. Now we are to live that way. This is about identity. If you're being honest about your personal walk, I know that each and every one of you with me would say, I'm not holy. I'm not righteous. Let me tell you what I did this last week. Some of you are too ashamed to even say it. But if you're in Christ, God looks at you and says, righteous, holy, justified, innocent, forever and ever. You are holy. That's your identity when you're in Christ. And for those who are not in Christ, they are identified as, they're defined as wrongdoers. That's their identity. Unrighteous. That's their identity. There are just two identities. That's it. Righteous or unrighteous. The two have no partnership. And this was the matter at hand for the Corinthians. As I mentioned, the first part of the chapter was about settling disputes. Don't invite the unrighteous in to settle disputes among the righteous. There's no agreement, no fellowship. Don't do it. And he goes on to explain theologically why this is so important. Again, verse 9, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. That is what's on the line. That's the big deal. That's why it matters. So I want to go through five questions. If you have your notes, I've got the five questions written out for you. And I want young people to take notes. If you're able to read and write, take notes. So Jackson, I want you to take notes. Get your bulletin. Now. Yeah. Okay. Uh, This is the gospel. I want you to get it. I want you to understand it. This is all that matters. In their suing of one another, the Corinthians had reverted their identity back to being wrongdoers. They were looking to defraud one another to do wrong, to do harm to one another. They reverted on their identity. They weren't living like their identity. And so Paul reminds them of this fundamental truth that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. And I want to work backwards from that question, answering a few things that will help us understand the gravity behind this. And first is, what is the kingdom of God anyway? So what? The unrighteous won't inherit the kingdom of God? Well, what is the kingdom of God? 
Scripture speaks of the kingdom of God in a variety of ways. We can see different applications of this term in the New Testament. But here it's quite clear that heaven is in view. The kingdom of God, as it's spoken of here, is speaking of heaven. And notice that it is God's. I I would be remiss if I didn't mention this obvious grammatical point, that the kingdom belongs to God. It's the kingdom of God the presence of God, it's heaven, where some will go after they die into the fullness of the presence of God, the kingdom of God. Second question is, what does it mean to inherit then? If it belongs to God, well, what does it mean to inherit? Well, basically defined, that word inherit means to receive, to possess. You're receiving something to possess it for yourself. You are taking possession. You're acquiring something. You hold on to it as your own. And just by answering those two questions, we see a theme in this basic question of verse 9, that there will be some who possess what God possesses. God is going to share what He has. And that's an astounding thought. The idea of being in heaven, the reality of being in heaven is to be in the presence of God as He shares what is His with us. We don't deserve it. We haven't earned it. We're not working for it. We're not taking it by force. God is sharing it with us because it's His. And He's giving it to us as an inheritance. But not everyone is going to receive it. It says quite clearly here, the unrighteous, again, that's the identity of the world, the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. So we have to answer, who are the unrighteous then? Who are the unrighteous? Well, the unrighteous are all those who have broken God's commands those who have rejected His code of holiness, those Ten Commandments and all that followed. The unrighteous are those who have broken the commands of God as He has revealed in Scripture. And we have a list here in 1 Corinthians 6, just these two verses, Paul gives us a list of ten sins. And there are other places that you can turn to in in the New Testament to see this. Romans chapter 1, Galatians chapter 5. Uh, 1 Timothy 1, there are lists of sins that God gives us to point out in our lives. And these, some of them mirror the Ten Commandments and some of them don't. Let's walk through them one by one so we understand. I had opportunity at the end of chapter 5 to explain some of these, but I thought I'd save it for this sermon where we'll just walk through and give a definition for each one. Here are the ten sins, the ten vices Paul lists here. The first is fornicators. Fornicators will not inherit the kingdom of God. This is just another word for the sexually immoral. Those who are sexually immoral, engaging in unlawful sexual relationships. In Corinth, of course, uh, prostitution was common. With each one of these, it's very culturally relevant to the Corinthians. 
But they had temple prostitutes. You could go to a temple of a pagan god and there would be a prostitute offering herself or himself for you to engage with sexually so that you could have communion with that false god. It sounds so twisted and backwards to us in our Western minds, but we're not far from it. Believe you me. It's engaging in any type of unlawful sexual relationship, rejecting God's design for it. It's a term that's all-encompassing in that way. The second sin listed is idolatry. Idolaters will not inherit the kingdom of God. These are worshipers of false gods. Worshippers of false gods. I just mentioned uh, the Greek temples, Greek mythology, that they had these pagan temples all over the place for all these false gods. But let's not relegate idolatry to just the first century. It is alive and well today in our own hearts. I was listening last night to a, a man who leads music regularly in churches, talking about his role as a music leader on Sunday mornings. And he said, all through the week, people have become idolaters. Everything but God has become big in their lives. All these things that they're dealing with have become bigger than God. And they come in on a Sunday morning, and his job is to point them back to the one true God. And that happens in us all the time, doesn't it? Idolaters will not inherit the kingdom of God. Adulterers, the next one listed. This is actually tied to both of the last two words. But of course, uh, the word literally has reference to infidelity toward a spouse. Being married to someone and then breaking that covenant through uh, joining with another. But figuratively, this word is used throughout the Bible of those who have abandoned the worship of God. They have become adulterers spiritually by joining themselves to false gods. So it speaks of more than just the uh, immediate. There's a big theme there. Fourthly is the effeminate. The effeminate will not inherit the kingdom of God. The word literally means soft, a word that means soft. It has to do with men who have perverted their role as men, who have forsaken their God-given role as men. They are men who seek to attract other men and to be treated as women. That's what effeminate meant in their context and in our context today. And the next word is related to it. This is very non-politically correct if you didn't pick that up. And I don't care if you didn't pick that up. <clears throat> Homosexuals, men who pursue other men. So you have two sides of the same coin. Effeminate are those who are seeking to be pursued by other men. Men who are the passive partners in a homosexual relationship. And homosexuals refers to the active partners in that relationship both of which are perversions of God's design for human relationships. Both of these fall under the big umbrella of an older term that we don't use very often, of sodomite. If you think of Sodom and Gomorrah, why were they destroyed? The people came and they wanted those angels. They wanted to treat the angels as they would treat women. Sodomites. And in the Corinthians' day, this was extremely pertinent there's a case to be made that 14 of the first 15 Roman emperors were either bisexual or homosexual. Nero 
who was likely just starting his reign at the time of this writing, Nero was married a couple of times. His first wife uh, died in childbirth uh, because Nero had thrown a temper tantrum, caused her to go into an early delivery by kicking her. A very, uh, not a very upstanding man. He has a second wife, and I don't know all the details of what happened there, but he eventually found a young man named Sporus, and you can read about this in all types of uh, literature of antiquity. He found a young man named Sporus who bore a striking resemblance to his first wife that he missed. So he had the young man castrated, and he had a wedding ceremony with the young man and treated the young man as his wife. That was the leader of the Roman Empire for the Corinthians. Again, we think, who would do such a thing? We're not far from it. We're already injecting things into our young people to keep them from developing. And it's celebrated. And if homosexuality is okay, why not pedophilia? Homosexual pedophilia. Why not? If you reject God's holiness code, anything can be embraced. And it was being embraced in the Corinthians culture. Sixthly, the word thieves is mentioned. Thieves will not inherit the kingdom of God. This is where we get the word klepto. You heard that term kleptomaniac? Someone who just likes to steal things? That's from the Greek. It comes from this word. Those who take someone else's property. And this is often done, of course, uh, very secretly. It's done by tricking somebody, taking money under the table, that sort of thing. That's what's in view here. If you've uh, listened to, to Ray Comfort, we just interviewed Ray Comfort for our uh, podcast recently. Uh, one of the things that he always does when he goes out sh- proclaiming the gospel, evangelizing, he'll ask people questions about the Ten Commandments. Have you ever told a lie? Have you ever used the Lord's name in vain? Have you ever lusted after someone who was not your spouse? And then he'll ask them, have you ever stolen anything? And it seems to me that that one, people are pretty quick to say, no, no, I haven't stolen anything. And then he follows up with even something small. Oh, okay, well, yeah. We just, you know, automatically cut the small stuff out however we want to define that. But stealing someone else's property is always big in God's eyes, isn't it? It's breaking a command. There are no degrees of that command. It's either breaking it or not. Thieves will not inherit the kingdom of God, nor the covetous. And this is what happens in someone's heart before they actually steal something. To be covetous means to desire someone else's property, to want to take something, even if you don't follow through with it, but to have that desire for something that isn't yours. It's a rejection of contentment in God's sovereignty, desiring to obtain something else for yourself. Drunkards will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's pretty self-explanatory. It's those who alter their mind through intoxication with alcohol. That's what it means to be drunk. And those who are drunkards will not inherit the kingdom of God. Revilers. Now, there's a word that you don't use very often. Revilers. This is in reference to abusive language. Have you seen a couple of people get into a, a war of words and they're just bickering back and forth and they both have the same goal? They want to tear the other person down. That's what reviling is. 
to speak at someone in such a way that you want to harm that person internally. You want to take down that person's morale. You want to harm that person. In our Acts Bible study just this past Wednesday night, we were in chapter 23, and Paul called out the high priest. He said, you're a whitewashed wall, and God's going to strike you. And some men who were standing by said, are you really going to talk that way to the high priest? And Paul said, whoops, I didn't know that was the high priest. (laughs) It seems that in that first century context, or even in God's command in the Old Testament, reviling had in view specifically someone who was in authority, speaking that way to someone who was in authority. So if you've ever mouthed off to a cop, for instance, you reviler, (laughs) Um, children who speak back to their parents, reviling. Those of us who curse the president, reviling. Revilers will not inherit the kingdom of God. And finally, tenth, swindlers. This is the same idea as thieves, same idea as stealing, but this has to do with a violent snatching of someone else's property. It's the same word for rapture. We talk about how the church will be caught up together uh, in the clouds with Jesus. That word for catching up is this word, to catch something, to take something by force, thieves and swindlers. So if we are considering both the Ten Commandments back in Exodus 20 and these ten sins, if we're to consider those 20 things and to answer, who are the unrighteous? Do you think you'd agree with me by saying all of us? Each and every one of us? We're all guilty, aren't we? And in the context of this verse, let's not lose the question that's at the start of verse 9. In the context of this verse, if we're admitting that we are, each and every one of us is in that category, we don't deserve the kingdom of God. We deserve hell. We deserve punishment. We deserve condemnation. Because there's nothing else outside of the kingdom of God in terms of eternity, there's only hell, which is eternal, conscious, torment forever. Four sins. And that's what we deserve. We are, in our natural state, the unrighteous. If someone's just getting that for the very first time, The next question has to just naturally be, what can I do to fix this? How can I remedy my condition? How can I change? The answer is, you can't change. There's absolutely nothing you can do to remedy your condition. There's nothing you can do to fix your natural state as someone who has broken God's commands. You're dead in sin, Scripture says. You ever asked a dead man to do anything? You can't do anything. You're dead. Well, so who will inherit the kingdom of God? If that's the case, who is going to inherit this kingdom? If we're all unrighteous, if we're all dead in our sin, if we can't do anything to fix our condition, who's going to heaven? 
Who is going to see God? Who will enjoy Him forever? The one who is saved by God through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. The one who is saved by God through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. He's the one who will inherit the kingdom of God. He's the one that God will say, this is my kingdom and I'm sharing it with you forever in my glory, for honor, for my name. Enjoy it forever. The one who has faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ inherits that kingdom. After dragging the Corinthians down with this list, I mean, Paul knew he was hitting on some very hot topics when he listed these sins. And after dragging them down, calling sin for what it is, one of the sweetest phrases in all of Scripture, these five words, verse 11, Paul says to this church, such were some of you. Such were, past tense. They've been saved. They're no longer defined by their sin. They're no longer condemned in their sin. They're no longer dead in sin, but they've been made alive. That was their former identity. Their new identity is in Christ. It says they've been washed. They've been sanctified. They've been justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. And it happened, this washing, this sanctifying, this justifying, it happened in an instant. It wasn't something they had been working toward and then they finally arrived. But it happened for each one of them in a moment when God saved them through genuine faith in the finished work of Christ. For those of you here this morning who are heaven-bound, who are citizens of the kingdom of God, there was a moment, a singular moment in your life when you were born again. It wasn't a nine-month process. (laughs) You were born again in an instant when you truly believed in the gospel, meaning you recognized your sinful condition, that you are unholy, that you're unrighteous, and that God is holy and something has to change. And you recognized there was nothing you could do to change yourself. But you looked to the cross, and what you saw there was the Son of God, truly God and truly man, hanging there in your place for your sins, bearing the punishment you deserved. You saw it being paid for at the cross. All of those sins, past, present, future sins, being taken care of by the nails that went through his hands, by him breathing his last, him crying, it is finished. What's finished? The payment that you owed was paid in full. And you heard the good news, the Easter morning message that he walked out of the grave, that he's no longer confined to the grave, but he has power over death and he proved it by walking out of the tomb, by proving that he is who he always said he was, Lord of lords. And you, because of the Spirit working in you, bowed the knee to that great Savior. You stopped bowing the knee to the sinful lifestyle that God hates. And you bowed the knee to King Jesus and you said, change me. 
Change me. There's nothing I can do to change myself. And you were born again. And he changed your heart. You became a new creation. You were born again to newness of life. And now, as a Christian empowered by the Holy Spirit, because that position was given to you as a holy child of God, you're called to keep walking in that newness. Keep walking in a manner worthy of your calling. Keep walking in newness of life. Keep seeking to please God. And in all that you're doing, God is with you, bearing fruit through you, bringing about joy and peace and righteousness in His kingdom. Isn't it a beautiful message? Isn't that wonderful? And there was nothing you did. There's nothing. The only thing you contributed to your salvation was the sin that made it necessary, Jonathan Edwards said. And you were really good at that. You brought it to the table. And God changed you according to His will, according to His purposes in Christ. And you, Christian, you will inherit the kingdom of God. You will. No doubts about it. It's yours. God has given it to you through the gospel. These Corinthians had lived lives of sin like the rest of us. But they were washed, they were sanctified, they were justified. They were forgiven. Their sins were washed away. This isn't talking about baptism. This word is never used to reference baptism in the New Testament. It has to do with their souls being purged of their sin, being cleaned of their sin. These Corinthians were set apart in that moment of salvation. God says, now you are mine. He's plucked you out of the world, but you're left in the world that you would be set apart for His honor here. These Corinthians just like the rest of us who have been saved, were justified, meaning they were declared innocent forever. No guilty charge can be brought against God's elect. You have been declared innocent once for all. And it all happened at conversion. Consider that congregation. He says, such were some of you. We're talking effeminate and homosexuals. We're talking adulterers. Thieves and swindlers, drunkards, they probably looked a lot like us. Such were some of you. What a dynamic. These people, very, very familiar with that life of sin, have been washed clean, set free, forgiven. And their identity is no longer in those sins that used to own them but their identity is in Christ who has set them free. Here's a quote from Charles Hodge. He was president of Princeton back when Princeton was good. He said, Their sins, considered as filth, had been washed away. Considered as pollution, they had been purified. Considered as guilt, they had been covered with the righteousness of God. It's the gospel. And the triune God is totally at work in this. Look at verse 11 again. 
They were justified in only one name, the name of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And that happened in the Spirit of God. We read in Ephesians chapter 1 that God the Father elects His chosen for salvation. That God the Son, Jesus Christ, comes to earth in flesh and dies on the cross. It wasn't the Father who died on the cross. It wasn't the Spirit who died on the cross. It was the Son. And that, that salvation that was won is applied to our hearts by the Holy Spirit. All three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, are at work in our salvation, and we see their glory and their beauty in our salvation because they're the ones doing it. The Son accomplished it. The Spirit applied it. And here, Paul is encouraging them with their new identity to stop defrauding one another. Quit reverting back to that old manner of life. But walk in the ways of God. Live for God. I spoke of this a couple weeks ago. It's the indicative and the imperative. The indicative, it's a It's a way of speaking that indicates something. He's indicated to them that they are holy. They're not considered wrongdoers by God. They're considered righteous by God. They're holy. Now, the imperative, the command that flows from that is live like it. Live like it. Don't be like a dog returning to its vomit. But God rescued you from that. God pulled you from the realm of death and planted you in the realm of life. Quit reaching back into the grave. There's nothing down there but worms. There's nothing for you. Now live and bear fruit for the glory of God. And this is done by the working of the Holy Spirit in our lives. We can sometimes chalk this up to just a footnote. Yeah, you get saved and then you, you live for God, footnote, the Holy Spirit does stuff through you. But in this letter, Paul doesn't talk that way. We're going to read a lot about the Holy Spirit in this letter because He is in us individually. He is with us corporately. And He's bringing about God's will in our lives as we yield to Him. This is from Gordon Fee. He says, The realities of our future glorification are already at work in power in the present age. The Spirit belongs to the creed and to our theology, but is all too left and let, left there. So that the Spirit's genuinely transforming and empowering work is often left until the end times, rather than experienced in the process of arriving there. You're, you're in the process of inheriting the kingdom of God. That's your destination. All of us, we're arriving there. And in the meantime, Even before we have our new glorified bodies, the Spirit is at work in us, through us, changing our hearts, changing our minds, so that we will live in accordance with our identity. And that's the message to these Corinthians, that our identity drives our living, whether for righteousness or for unrighteousness. That identity is driving the way we live. And if you're saved, yield to the Spirit who is bringing about righteous fruit in your life because you are righteous in Christ. Isn't it a beautiful thing?
God, we do thank you. Again, we can't thank you enough that you've given us the gospel, you've given us yourself. We have all the reason to be grateful because of Jesus. We ask that you would continue to do amazing things in our hearts and minds, breaking us free of these sins that we used to know so well and bringing about more and more honor and glory for your namesake through us. Cause us to shine for your glory in this fallen world that as we interact with the world, as we mingle with the world, we wouldn't blend, but that we would shine brightly because of the gospel accomplished for us by our King Jesus. In his name, amen.